Sisters and brothers, are you familiar with the term worship wars? Worship wars describes this silly, ongoing argument that churches have about, most of the times, what kind of music should be played in church worship. I say silly for a reason that I'll get to in a little bit. And I think when some of us think about some of that argument, maybe that we've experienced, you may think, yeah, we've been, we've been talking about that for 10 years. Well, actually, we've been talking about it for longer than that. It's been like 20 years. Well, it's actually been more than 20 years. It actually goes back 30 years. Actually, you can find people in the 70s going crazy about what kind of music was being played in worship, right? But I want to tell you, it goes back even further than that. We've been arguing about silly stuff for a long time. For, for example, do you know what instrument was once called by some people, quote, the devil's instrument? Can you take a guess? A guitar here? Who? Flute? Drums? No. Actually, Mr. Professor's right. Can you imagine this? There's a time when people thought... This thing was the devil's instrument. The devil's bagpipe, what it was called once. Now, that doesn't seem right to some of us because some of us can't imagine church without this thing. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? So you see what happens. We start arguing about things that are so silly. Now, don't misunderstand me. The effects of worship wars are not silly because churches have been split over these kinds of conversations. Christians have ridiculed each other and questioned each other's faith because of the music they find meaningful. The effects of worship wars are not silly. What is silly is that we Christians sometimes have this awkward tendency to argue over things that Jesus has already settled. Jesus had been traveling, and we're told in the book of John, which just happens to be, by the way, the greatest book of the Bible, where Jesus is traveling, and one day he gets tired, so he takes a water break, and he sits down at a well. And as he's sitting there by himself at this well, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Now, we find out in their conversation that the woman has been married several times, and most likely that would have been a point of shame for her, that may even be part of the reason that she's drawing water in the middle of the day instead of earlier with some of her friends. We might be able to say that she is a bit of an outcast. But I don't want us to think about that too much today. What I want us to remember about her is that she is identified specifically as a Samaritan woman. Why that's important is because that automatically, automatically puts her at odds with Jesus because Jews and Samaritans have a strained relationship, to say the least. They have their own worship wars. That's why at first when Jesus speaks to her, the woman is surprised and she says, what are you doing speaking to me? Jews and Samaritans don't speak together. But within their conversation, the woman recognizes Jesus as a prophet. And what I find the most striking about all this is in one sentence she says, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. And the very next sentence she says, 
Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. You see that? So the very first opportunity she gets to speak to someone that she knows is a man of God, the very first thing she wants to know is, who wins the worship wars? The Samaritans believe that by God's command, God was to be worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And the Jews believed that God was to be worshipped at Jerusalem. Now you and I, with good reason, might wonder, what's the big deal? You can worship anywhere. Praise God. But you see how worship wars work? You see how silly they can be? When we step back and take ourselves, take ourselves out of our own worship wars, we can see just how silly they are. Now, the good news is that Jesus answers her. She has this concern about who wins the worship wars. And his response is, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure he means you as in plural, like you and your people and all the Samaritans. But I also have to figure out, figure that there's a sense that he's talking directly to her and saying, woman, there is an hour when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. He goes on to say, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father, you know this, in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Now notice how Jesus settled the issue about where worship should happen. Essentially, he told us, he showed us that true worshipers are less concerned about the method of worship and more concerned about the attitude of worship. Jesus gives us, he gives the woman, he gives every disciple that will ever read this text until the end of the age, the one thing that we need to know about what makes worship real. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I love how one pastor explains it. I wish I was as smart as other pastors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what he says, I don't think initially sounds right to us, but what he says is the world is full of good worship. The world is full of good worship. If you look at concerts, you look at sporting events, you know what you see? You see people who are more than willing to give worth to something and to do it with passion and with excitement and with commitment. In and of itself, is that's good worship. If you can give something worth with that kind of attitude. The problem is it's good worship, but it's a bad God. The world offers good worship of a bad God. And now the issue that we face in the church quite often is that we have bad worship of a good God. Now think about that. If good worship involves passion, excitement, and commitment, and giving worth to something, what could we say about what bad worship involves? A couple questions for you. Did you come in here this morning with a little bit of excitement in your heart? 
Were you expecting to experience the power of God or did you come here mainly because this is what you've been doing on Sunday morning for as long as you can remember? Did you come with a critical eye on everything that happens here? Did you come with an attitude of expectation or did you just come with an attitude? Do you find when you're here that your mind is constantly wandering to things that have nothing to do with God, with nothing to do with what we are doing here as the people of God? Sisters and brothers, hear me please and don't think I'm pointing a finger at you. I'm pointing a finger at us because we're all people. What we need to realize is bad worship of a good God usually means that somewhere along the line, in some ways, sometimes in a lot of ways, we've made our worship more about us than about God. And we would never say this out loud, but by the things that we say and by the things that we do and good heavens, by the way that we act, we think worship is about us. It's about what makes us feel good about being here. It's about what we like. It's about what we get out of it. You ask people after church, well, how, how was church? Usually people say, oh, it was good. I felt so, so good. I was glad I was there. That's okay. But what about God? Was glad, God glad you were there? Sisters and brothers, the world is full of people giving good worship to a bad God, and the world is full of churches who are full of people constantly thinking about what they want out of worship. And unfortunately, what gets lost in all of that and all of those worship wars is what is most important. The question of what does God want? What does God want when God brings us together? You need to think about this. We didn't decide... I think we need to go to church every week. That was something God told us to do. Why? God wanted you to be here this morning. Why? God wanted us to carve out this time in our week, week in, week out. Why? Why does God want us to be here? What is the point that God has in his heart and his mind for calling us all together? Every weekend. I don't know about you, but you know, if I wasn't doing this faith thing, see, it's about 11.37, I might still be in my pajama bottoms right now on a Sunday morning. But God calls us to be here. Why? Is it because he needs to take roll? Is it because he needs to keep an eye out on you? No. Jesus tells us why. According to Jesus, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Watch this. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. Hear it all the time. Yeah, but you can worship anywhere. You're right. You can worship at the gas station. You can worship on your back porch. That's fine. But God called us here as a people of God together. And there's got to be a reason for that. And I think part of that reason when we come together is to recognize the power and the nature of God in a way that we can't always do when we're by ourselves. A way for us to experience the grace of God that we don't always get to see when we are by ourselves. 
When we come together, we hear about the praise of God's people. When we come together, we get to see the joy on other people's faces. You can't do that when you're by yourself. You can praise God by yourself, but God has told us to be here together. So it must be a good God thing for us to be here together. So hopefully you're asking yourself, how do I give good worship to a good God? Here's how. Envision Jesus sitting at the well. And we know this, right? We cannot survive without water. I praise God for elders. She makes sure I have a bottle of water every Sunday here. Sometimes she asks me, do you need two this week? Because she knows I just start, right? <laughs> now we know that we can't live without water. And because we can't live without water, we'll do whatever we can to find water, to have water. Our biology tells us that we need water because our body is 60 to 65% made of water and can't produce water on its own. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had this deep thirst, if you were walking and walking, you were tired and you were so extremely thirsty, if someone offered you a cup of water, would you complain about what the cup looked like? That'd be silly, wouldn't it be? Now, imagine someone offered you that cup of water. And you take the first drink of the water. What do you do? I used to think that was a TV thing. I used to think that that was like one of those acting things. And some people play it up, let's be real. But have you ever been really thirsty? You take a drink of water. Uh, I think that expression is a good reminder of what we're talking about today. The sigh of our thirsty soul is the true expression of worship. When we come here, we recognize that we have found in God what our soul needs. And we are grateful. We have found that when we worship, we are worshiping the one, the only, who can deliver us from our sin, who can lead us to new everlasting and eternal life. And because of that, we are grateful. And so our worship becomes that sigh of, I have found what my soul needs. Sisters and brothers, true worshipers are those who give God worship and honor and glory that is due His name because of what they know God has done for them. There's nothing silly about that at all. We worship because God is good. All the time. Thank you for saying that because if, if we worship because God is good, and if God is good all the time, then when do we worship? All the time. So let me make a deal with you. If God stops being good, you and I can stop worshiping. Deal? But guess what? God is always going to fill our need of salvation. 
God is always going to be the only one that can quench the thirst of our soul. Praise be to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.